Good morning and happy solstice. Um, one thing about this solstice, which is cool, is that, first of all, it's going to be happening during this talk. I think the solstice is at 11.32. And the other thing is that the solstice can happen, the, the kind of max of the the maximum point of the earth being pointed toward the sun can happen at any time of the day. So we don't necessarily, it could happen at, you know, 2.30 a.m. But today it's happened 11.32, only about 20 minutes from the solar noon. So that means that the sun is going to be the highest, pretty much in those 20 minutes, the highest in the sky where we are in the northern hemisphere as it can be. So right here where we are, in the kind of northern, I don't know what happens when you change the latitude and longitude, but but for this area, New York City and, and upstate, the sun will be the most direct and highest we may see it for years. So enjoy it this afternoon after we're finished sitting. And um, we're going to be doing a solstice ceremony at lunch. We'll chant the Enmei Juku Kanengyo and um, and offer merit to the earth and to the sun. And we're going to call up um, a particular deity, I mean, well, Bodhisattva, Daigen Shuri Bodhisattva, Daiganshuri Bodhisattva will be mentioned, which is kind of, Daiganshuri has this great history. Um, it's kind of a bringing together of several spirits and deities over the years, um, over the years meaning like 2,000 years, um, to come together in what we now call Daiganshuri Bodhisattva, who is one of the guardian bodhisattvas for Soto Zen temples and is considered Earth spirit is considered the earth spirit bodhisattva. But um, Daigen is, was said to be the protector of the stupas for King Ashoka when Buddhism was spreading across India. So kind of took care of the transmission of the spreading of Buddhism across India is associated with Bodhidharma in coming to China is often um, seen with um, hand over eyes because Daigen Shuti is looking out all over all of China to ensure the Dharma is cared for and becomes the earth spirit of one of the main temples there that, that Dogen went to. And then Dogen came back, story is Dogen came back with um, Daigen Shuri disguised as a white snake in a bag that um, Dogen was carrying back with him to um, to ensure that the that the um, blue the blue cliff record was brought back and translated and um, so that might that might bring up for those who know the story of of the Nagas who who are serpents who brought the Prajnaparamita Sutras to, to Nagarjuna. So there's some suggestion of the relationship between Daigen Shuri and being a Naga who can disguise themselves in different ways to protect 
the Dharma. And so in some ways, if you pull it all together, Daigon Shuri is the Bodhisattva that ensures the transmission of the Dharma to new lands and harmonizes the Dharma with the earth of that land. And so we call on Daigon Shuri in these times when we're recognizing the harmony of the Dharma with the cycles of the earth. There's something that struck me in what we just chanted. We've been talking about intention and worlds. But one thing that I want to talk about is this notion today of um, the relationship between intention and worlds and our intention that we hold and how that's related to vow. Because a vow is kind of like a super intention, right? It's, um, it's not really an intention that we take personally, even though it may feel personal to us, but a vow for it to have um, strength, right? Is a vow that often is communal. It's with a community. It's with a community that supports those vows. Um, it's usually within a tradition. It's often within a tradition that's been taking these vows for centuries. In our tradition, that's certainly the case. And so when we enter into vow, there's all of these intentions that we have wrapped up in our um, our own karmic dispositions, our own heritage and histories. And then we step in and we insert into all of that vow. And when that happens, when we, the reason vow is so important for us is that vow begins to reorganize our world. If we pay attention, actually, those of us who have taken vows, we've, we've seen this happen, right? We start before vow, we have a kind of a world that we think is organized around whatever we think happiness and freedom is. And we take vows, whether we take vows formally in a ceremony or whether we have taken vows in this community for ourselves in a meaningful way or whether we're on our way to taking vows or whatever our relationship to vow is. When we insert vow into our life, when we insert vow into the realm of intentionality, the world begins to change. The world begins to be organized in a different way. And we actually aren't living, it's very quickly apparent to us that we are not living in the same world. And that the world we were living in and the way it was organized ceases, it makes less and less and less sense to us. It seems more and more distant as a way of being. And people change, beings change how we're relating to them change. Less and less do they seem to be whatever they were to us. Um, things we needed to be happy, inconveniences, things in a, you know, the hedonistic world of things either make us happy or don't make us happy. And everything being organized around whether 
a person is somebody that increases our pleasure or doesn't increase our pleasure. And that way of living in that world begins to fall away and become something else. A world of beings who are struggling, a world of beings who want to be happy, just like I do. A world of beings that want to be safe, a world of beings that want to be healthy. A world of beings who are trying to understand what that is, what all of those things mean and what the pathways to them are. And they are a part of who I am. And their struggle is a part of who I am. And I can't find anything that makes them something so simple as something that brings me pleasure or not. Or agrees with me or not. Or has the same view of the world that I do or doesn't. So we take these vows and they're communal. We're upheld by the community. We're reminded by the community. We're reminded by the tradition. We're reminded by the Buddha Dharma. We're reminded by the world. Because once we take up the vows, the vows are, are rooted deeply in, for us, in this commitment to understanding dependent co-arising, to understanding interbeing, to seeing the world in that way, to seeing the causal relationships between things. And so our eyes and our ears and our, everything about us begins to see that. We begin to notice it because we've been pointed to it by our vows. And so when that happens, then the earth, we can actually learn from the earth because the earth is constantly showing us this. When we're pointed toward interbeing, we can start to learn from interbeing. When we're pointed by our intentions toward separation, we can't learn anything from interbeing. It's like beating on the door of our mind trying to get in, but we're not interested. But when our heart opens up to that through vow, we can begin to see it. And our world becomes a dancing, intermeshed world. Which is not easy, because we feel all the pain of that world, too. But um, it's alive, and it's less confused. And so there, you know, there is, um, and vow and community in that way. It's not only that the community makes that vow stronger, which it certainly does. Vow and community shows us what vow actually is, which is not something in here, but something here. Something between us all, something that's arising as a world that's including all of us. That my intention, my vow is not something that I can walk around and self-generate. I can't self-generate my vow. Vow is actually upheld by community. It's actually upheld by bowing to Buddha, by reading Dharma. That's how vow is upheld. If we're not engaged in that, those activities, vow, is, vow doesn't have any supports. It begins to kind of dwindle back into a personal sense of intention and self and so on. And we try to uphold it with the self. But we can't uphold vow with the self any more than we can hold up any difficult intention with the self. We've all had very grandiose intentions that fall apart in a few weeks or minutes. 
because they're grounded in the self. And the self is a transparent, weak support for anything. It's a transparent, weak support for anything that wishes to transcend greed and hatred and confusion. It's a really good support for greed, hatred, and confusion. But it's a very weak support for anything that wants to transcend that. And I don't mean transcend, go somewhere else. I mean just enter into the world. That isn't the self-driven world. And so we actually um, surrender to the world so that there can be vow. So that there can be supports for vow. We surrender to a tradition so that there can be vow. Doesn't mean we give up our power or we, you know, become foolish. But we trust the ancestors who have brought us the Dharma. We trust our community. Doesn't mean that we don't have a critical engagement with that community and that we're not wise. But we trust the community to help us uphold the vow. Not even just to uphold the vow. They are the upholding of the vow. The trust is an intention that creates the possibility for the upholding of the vow. And the strength pours in. When the trust is there, the strength of the community pours in and upholds the vow. And so when there isn't trust, we have to do our best to understand why. And to converse with each other and meet with each other and have open conversations with each other and do our best not to get in the way of building that trust back or finding what is blocking it. Sometimes it's a harm that's been done in the immediate circumstances. Sometimes it's a harm that's been done many years ago that are affecting our view. And we just have to do the difficult, vulnerable work of understanding what that is so that our vow can be upheld. We're doing that. I'm doing that work to uphold my own vow. If I don't do the work of addressing harm that I've caused that has resulted in trust being broken, then there won't be the connections required for the vow that I'm committed to to be upheld. My vow weakens with every every breakage. And so the forms help us with this too, because the forms teach us the customs of moving together as one, clarifies intention for us. We resist them when we first come in because we want our way of doing things to be the way we do things. Or we take them up with a kind of pride, which still makes just makes the forms our way of doing things. And then over time that, that gets negotiated and we harmonize and we find intentionality in our shared practice together. And harmonizing does not mean our voice is lost, right? When we harmonize, we don't lose our voice. We harmonize our voice. We don't stop singing. We don't stop chanting. Harmonizing isn't being lost or destroyed. 
it's actually showing up fully as one is resonant with others that are an aspect of our lives that actually make up our life. So the Bodhisattva vows, when it comes to this relative looking at intention and, and absolute, the great thing about the Bodhisattva vows, very, very smart, they harmonize the two. So when Suzuki Roshi says, you know, no gaining mind, don't clean, don't clean with the idea of a clean room in mind. This is how the Bodhisattva vows are set up, right? Beings are numberless. I vow to free them. The first half tells you the impossibility of it. If there's something you want in the self here, you're not going to find it. There's no completion. The Bodhisattva vows are the four noble truths through the lens of the Bodhisattva. This is often how they're understood. So beings are numberless. I vow to free them is the recognition of suffering. Delusions are inexhaustible. I vow to end them is the recognition that there's a cause of suffering, our own delusions. Dharma gates are boundless. I vow to enter them. There's an end. Dharma is the end. Dharma gates are the end of our suffering. And then the Buddha's way is unsurpassable. I vow to become it, the Eightfold Path, the following the way of the Buddha. But in every case, all of these, as things that we look at, are not completable. Not only is beings are numberless, I vow to um, free them. Okay, so the idea that we're going to finish, that gets taken away. But now we might think we're really grandiose. Like, I have this Bodhisattva vow that's going to go on for eternity. This is corrected by delusions are inexhaustible. Don't lose sight that your grandiose mind around your vow now is completely delusional. We might get discouraged by inexhaustible delusions. So we don't want to forget that they're also inexhaustible Dharma gates. Each delusion being a Dharma gate each limitation to our capacity, to our understanding, being a Dharma gate. Every delusion fully explored is a Dharma gate. Because the mind is nowhere other, the delusional mind is nowhere other than reality. Small mind is nowhere other than big mind. The small self is nowhere other than the whole world. And so there is ultimately, there is no location difference between delusion and realization. They are located in the exact same place. It's just, are we squinting our eyes or not? And then finally, you know, you have these Dharma gates, you have these realizations, you have this seeing. You think you're realized. Let's not forget that there is no end to the Buddhist, the Buddha path. The Buddha's way is unsurpassable. There is not, um, you're not going to get beyond, none of us are going to get beyond this. We're not going to get beyond the duty 
to explore and look at delusion, to explore and look at harm, to look at confusion, to look at the way I'm erecting a self over and against or under and against another person. That that person is me and my understanding of that person is completely colored by the intentionality that is the world that I understand myself to be. What's wonderful about Sashin or sitting with other people, which we will all be doing again, I pray soon, but we've, we've done it. So we have this in our bodies is that we can feel the room of universes supporting each other without saying a word. We can feel all of this as true in Sashin, right? We can feel that all of the vow, the vow of everyone else is supporting my vow, that the sitting of everyone else is supporting my sitting, that the deepening of everyone else is my deepening. All of those things are just clear. No one has to tell us that. We just know it to be true. Then we go out into the world and we forget that the very same thing is happening all the time. Dogen gives us a prescription for bodhisattvas who want to um, uphold this kind of intention, this kind of vow. Um, he calls it the bodhisattva's four methods of guidance. It's pretty good. Um, and it's simple. There's only four, which is I'm always grateful in Buddhism because we have some long lists that are hard to remember. So four is great. Um, the first might not be a surprise. The first is Donna. The first is giving. A giving spirit, a spirit that does not organize itself around self-interest and greed, but that organizes itself around being generous with the world and being open with the world. And it's a wonderful thing to look at is is because I do it all the time, you know, in what moments, moment to moment to moment to moment, when I shrink and become greedy, not even greedy, not generous. Not generous doesn't always look like greed, right? It can just look like no. You know, and not a no for a good, particularly good reason. I mean, there's the no that that is for a good reason, like I'm tired and I'm overextending myself. I have that problem, too. The pro I definitely have the problem of saying yes to the point of not caring for myself. So that's one side. But then there's the and and often if I don't do that, then it gives birth to the other side, which is the self-interested no. <laughs> that is not very kind. So um, Dogen's encouraging us as bodhisattvas to enter into the world with this kind of giving feeling. And he says non-greed. He says giving is non-greed. Non-greed means not to covet. Not to covet means not to curry favor. And he goes on and on about not currying favor. It's the authentic path. So this whole relationship of giving that, he goes to a number of them, but what they kind of share is... Um, Giving is a renunciation of control. 
dana is the ultimate renunciation of control or the ultimate maybe the ultimate expression of dana is the complete renunciation of control because when we're not when i'm not generous it's usually there's some element of i'm trying to control something about the situation i need this to do this to do etc 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 if i let go of control it's very easy to be generous because what's going to be lost in fact the only thing that happens with generosity when there's no control is everything is gained because people are happy and there's connection there's joy there's support there's love there's a sense of connect you know all of that arises i think the solstice where right now the solstice is happening we're a few minutes past it so happy summer <laughs> the next thing he talks about is kind speech so the first is generosity the second is kind speech kind speech means that when you see sentient beings you arouse the heart of compassion and offer words of loving care it is contrary to cruel or violent speech in the secular world there's the custom of asking after someone's health in the buddha way there's the phrase please treasure yourself and the respectful address to seniors may I ask how you are it is kind to speak to sentient beings as you would a baby i always love when dogen becomes very grandmotherly because he's often not so when he does it's <laughs> very sweet um praise those with virtue feel compassion for those without it if kind speech is offered little by little kind speech expands thus even kind speech that is not ordinarily known or seen comes into being be willing to practice it for this entire present life do not give it up world after world life after life kind speech is the basis for reconciling rulers and subduing enemies those who hear kind speech from you have a delighted expression and a joyful mind those who hear of your kind speech will be deeply touched they will always remember it know that kind speech arises from kind heart and kind heart from the seed of of a compassionate heart ponder the fact that kind speech is not just praising the merit of others it has the power to turn the destiny of a nation the third one beneficial action or skillful means beneficial beneficial action is skillfully to benefit all classes of sentient beings by all classes he means the six realms animals hungry ghosts um people in hell realms humans jealous gods and the and the gods um beneficial action is skillfully to benefit all classes of sentient beings that is to care about their distant and near future and to help them by using skillful means he tells these great stories in ancient times someone helped a caged tortoise another took care of a sick sparrow they did not expect a reward they were moved to do the so only for the sake of beneficial action foolish people think that if they help others first their own benefits will be lost but this is not so 
Beneficial action is an act of oneness, benefiting self and others together. This, um, these start to link together. Now, one of the things in the fourth one will make this very clear. One of the things I, that, that maybe you're seeing as a theme is this relation, what giving and kind speech and beneficial action have in common is that there is no recognition in these activities as a division between oneself and another person. That this is a fluid turning that is always happening. And in being generous, generous with another person, I am being strengthened. In being kind with another person, I am being strengthened. In being skillful, I am being strengthened. And that's not the reason one should do it. It's just clarity. That there is no, um, there is no against. And we have all kinds of um, histories sedimented in our being that um, suggest otherwise. And it suggests otherwise because everybody involved in those situations had the belief were either completely unconscious of their conditioning or had the belief that self was more important than other. Usually both. Self is more important than other, unconscious of our conditioning in doing that. And so the everything in us that suggests otherwise evidences the truth of it. Because all of the violence that causes us to believe otherwise is because the people involved in that activity were all confused about their interbeing with everyone else. If they were not confused about that, those activities would not have, those, those harms would not have arisen. It's not possible within the world of interbeing. It is not possible for the intentions to harm another person like that to arise because view creates the, the potential for certain intentions, which create the, first, the, the potential for certain activities. And the intentions of that kind of harm don't arise when it's clear that everyone here is me. It just doesn't, it can't arise. It's not one of the possibilities within that view. We can slip out of that view and then do it. That view creates nurture. That view takes a great deal of nurturing, that standpoint. But, um, but as long as it's there, this is why the, the Dogen says, there are no Buddhas, there's only Buddha activity. When we don't just like wake up and become a Buddha, we nurture Buddha activity. We nurture Buddha activity. And this is why Dogen does never separates. He's very wise about this. He never separates ritual, vow, precepts, all of these things that we do from Buddhahood, because he understands clearly that all of those things are required to support the intentions necessary to uphold Buddha activity. Without all of those things happening, but activity falls, we can't, we start becoming a self. 
we start grasping the self. We start treating the self as a foundation again. So the last thing that he says is, um, he calls it, it's a very strange translation, but I'll I'll unpack it because it'll seem weird at first. (laughs) The way it's translated is identity action, which is a very clunky English phrase, but... um, but what it is essentially, it, it, it's called, he says, it means non-difference. It is non-difference from self, non-difference from others. For example, in the human world of the Tathagata, took, the Tathagata took the form of a human being. From this, we know that he did the same in other realms. When we know identity action, self and others are one. So basically what he's, what he's saying is what we've been talking about, which is, Activity is arising of self and other together in a non-dual relationship. I am not acting onto something. The world and me, whatever I there's not even that distinction. The world is arising and action and activity are coming out of it. And I am one aspect of that. Just one though, just one little tiny aspect. Right? So the world is arising as this moment. The activity of the world is arising at this moment. The way all the parts of the world are responding to each other are arising as this moment. And I am one perspective onto that. And one asp- some aspects of me are involved in that activity. But that, none of that activity is owned by me. If we want a very simple expression of this, when a leaf turns to the sun, The leaf turns, right? But the turning to the sun isn't because the leaf made the decision to turn to the sun. The action of turning to the sun is not owned by the leaf. It doesn't sit in the leaf. The leaf didn't sit there this morning and say, I'm going to turn to the sun at three o'clock or whatever it is. I'm going to follow the sun across the sky. The tree in the middle of the forest grows straight up as far as it can. The tree on the edge of the forest, all its branches grow out of the sun, right? These were not decisions that were made. It didn't, it wasn't on one side of the equation. The location of the sun, the location of the tree came together and created the activity. This is true of everything. Everything in life is that example. Everything that we're doing, we're taking the position of the tree and saying, look at the way I'm reaching my arms out into the sunlight. That's all me. I'm doing that reaching. I'm reaching high. I'm reaching out. No, the circumstances of life have resulted in such that that is the way we grew. And when we're clear on this, then we're clear on how important it is to place our bodies in the circumstances that bring about a particular kind of growth and activity. If we think that I am the cause of it, then we have this notion about life that we're transplantable. Well, if I'm a good person here, I'll be a good person over there too. If I'm a good person in, you know, with a Zen community, I've been a pretty good person for six years. So now I'm going to go and I'm going to go hang out wherever and I'll be the same person. And then we'll watch how that all erodes and changes into something else. 
it's not, we're not transplantable souls that have the ability to determine the way we behave. We, like the tree, grow according to circumstances. And so this is why this is so important at the end, because the Bodhisattva is not only recognizing this identity action, is not only recognizing that this is where it all comes together into one thing, is not only recognizing that um, activity is arising here in the world, is the world arising as a, um, as a reflection of wisdom or reality, but it's a reflection of compassion. Because now I'm taking care of the true me, which is everybody. All the causes and conditions that are happening, any harm that's happening in the world, whatever it is, that's all the true me. Doesn't even make sense to say me in that situation. But if we're going to use that, the true me is everybody who's conditioning everything from which I'm arising. So to care for the practice, to care for the tradition, to care for the world, to care for everyone around me, all of that's necessary for me to manifest as the kind of person that I would like myself to be. I have to care for everyone. And if I'm going to care for me, I'm going to care for everyone. And I'm going to care for everyone. I'm caring for me. Anything that doesn't recognize that, that doesn't recognize that is for Dogen and for the Buddha and for, I would say, Buddhism, it's just confusion. He says this, action means right form, dignity, correct manner. This means that you cause yourself to be in identity with others. The relationship of self and other varies limitlessly according to circumstances. I'm going to kind of end here, but just to say that everything that, um, this is why our zazen and our intention is so important because there is no ground in this understanding of the world, in this seeing of the world. There is no, I'm going to get my lists right, or I'm going to get the right things to do, or I'm going to cultivate myself as a perfect person and then go into every circumstance and be great and be spiritually fantastic. A bodhisattva knows that going into every situation is walking into a completely different world. And into that completely different world, we have to have stillness of mind and presence to receive that world fully so that we can then respond to that world. But we can't respond to that world until we've built the capacity to receive that world. People think that they can build up some kind of spiritual fortitude and walk into any world and be of help. That's mostly feels obnoxious. You know, it's, it's building the capacity to receive worlds that makes a bodhisattva. All worlds, even the ones we completely don't agree with or don't like, so I'll stop there and um, thank you for, thank you for listening. This whole retreat. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by the Brooklyn Zen Center. 
Our programs are given free of charge and made possible by the donations we receive. For more information on supporting Brooklyn Zen Center, please visit the giving section of brooklynzen.org.